1: Well, auto retailer, AutoNation reported this morning earnings uh, better than expected. Stock is reacting. It's up 3.3% today. And over the trailing 12 months, stock of AutoNation is up 70%, 70%. So certainly a good run there. Let's get some color on the quarter and the strategy going forward for AutoNation. We do that with Mike Jackson. He's the CEO of auto Nation, Mike, thanks so much for joining us here. A uh, good quarter this morning. You beat on revenue, beat on EPS. What were the key drivers in the quarter for you?
3: Yeah, not only was it a good quarter, it was the best quarter of all time. So, there you go. Um, and that's <laughs> back-to-back best quarters of all time. So the um, environment is very good for auto retail. While there, there is unquestionably significant economic pain out there in America, which is difficult to watch, in housing or auto retail, uh, there's been a reallocation of the pocketbook uh, towards the space you live in and the space you move around in. And people want personal space that, that is nice and comfortable and they control. And you combine that with very attractive interest rates, available and affordable gasoline and all the stimulus that's going into the economy. Uh, for auto retail and, uh, and the demand for automobiles, it's very strong. Within that, AutoNation is outperforming uh, the marketplace. We have a terrific brand, a great customer experience, digital capability. That's uh, remarkable. And if I look at just our pre-owned business, our revenue was up 12% in the quarter. uh, And overall, pre-owned was uh, probably flat for the industry, maybe even slightly down.
2: Mike, why uh, why is pre-owned doing better than new car sales right now?
3: Well, pre-owned has always been a larger marketplace. The new, the new retail market's around 14 million a year, some years 15, and pre-owned is between 35 and 40 each year. So uh, the demand is strong across the entire spectrum of personal vehicles from a price point of $5,000 through $400,000. I mean, people want personal space. That is what they're clamoring for. Yep. Now, on the new vehicle side, there is a production disruption. That was triggered by the pandemic and now has been further complicated with a competition for chips uh, and uh, the auto industry getting uh, the short end of the stick uh, as people spending more time in their home want more personal entertainment instruments. um, And those chips are going into those industries rather than the automobile industry. Mm. And production is uh, constrained and for this, me, there's this, no
2: personal entertainment instrument like a Porsche 911. <laughs> uh, that, that gives me. I got
3: to me... tip your hat too. there. I fully agree. You're in my camp. Whenever I get in a bad mood, I take the keys and say, "Honey, I'm getting in my 911. I'm going to do a few laps. I'll see you." It, <laughs> so it,
2: it I'm is. Back with a I'm smile sure. On my face. I'm sure. Also, well deserved, uh, Mike. You've done such a great job leading the company. The stock is just off the charts right now. Um, you're going to step down as CEO. Next April, have you found a successor?
3: No, but we've be, we've begun the process in the following sense. It's really two successions on both chairman and CEO. And we said over a year ago that when the time comes, we would have a separate, distinct, independent chairman and a new CEO. Now, since we already know who the chairman's going to be, the board met yesterday and selected and elected Rick Burdick as uh, the chairman, uh, assuming my responsibilities. Rick's been a director for the company 30 years. He's been a lead director for the uh, last several years. He's widely known and respected within the company. So we had half the answer to the question there. Uh, Rick is going to lead the selection team, which will kick off in the spring, for a new CEO. And the timing is really... You can't bring in a new CEO without the resumption of robust travel and meetings. I mean, I can do the Wizard of Oz thing behind the curtain because everybody knows me. (laughs) I just pick up the phone or do a Zoom call, and I can – and everybody most of the time does what I say. Uh, So it's wonderful. (laughs) But if you're new – and this is something that companies are going to have to deal with. If you're new to a company, new to an enterprise, I mean you have to be out there. And you can't responsibly resume travel – uh, without this vaccination, but we're optimistic about the vaccination. Right. So we'll start our search in the spring, and we'll find a terrific new CEO. I'm,
1: I'm, I'm very optimistic. Hey, Mike. You know, just as recently as a couple of years ago, with the rise of Uber and Lyft, there was a concern that we might have reached peak auto. Pandemics kind of changed that narrative. How do you view kind of demand for auto ownership going forward? Yeah, here's the key. The key word. If I look at the, again, you're talking. If you talk to
3: new vehicle market. You have a a fleet or shared business, and you have personal use retail. I am extremely bullish on uh, retail and personal use. I think it's a fundamental shift in thinking of America. I think this pandemic has been a scarring event. I can remember growing up as a kid, meeting people who lived through the Great Depression and were frugal for the rest of their lives. And when I would say, how come you can't spend any money, they would say, well, if you've been through what I've been through, right. you you would be this way. I think, I think this pandemic will ultimately be a scarring event with some permanent changes, and one of those will be around um, their home. They want more space. Uh, they want it to be nicer, and they want personal transportation. So I think um, rates are going to be low for a long time. Gas is available for a long time and, and um, demand for personal transportation is strong.
1: That sets up pretty well uh, for auto ownership. Mike Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. Mike Jackson, CEO of Auto Nation on earnings uh, for the company, which were very, very strong stock up 70% trailing 12 months. Uh, Matt, what do you, what's your ride in Berlin? How do you get around?
2: Well, I have the 911 here, uh, nice. which which I, which I like, but it's a little bit too fast for um, the mean streets of Berlin. So I got a little family truckster to haul around the wife and kids.
1: All right, good for you. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't hear it. motorcycle in there. We'll have to talk about that. I've got, one, I've, got
2: like. a, I've got a few motorcycles as well. I've got a That's, fleet that my wife is very unhappy about.
1: <laughs> I'm sure she is. All right, we're gonna have more coming up on Bloomberg Markets. Boy, one of those industries that has been hit the hardest uh, by this pandemic uh, has been the hotel industry industry. I mean, that was day one that the hotels saw their business dry up and it's been a tough road since. Now we're uh, waiting for the reopening phase of the economy. Question is, what does it mean for the hotel business, the value of hotels? Gilda Perez-Alvarado, she's the global CEO for JLL, that's the Jones Lang LaSalle Group. Uh, She joins us and they have a 2021 investment uh, outlook for the hotel business. Gilda, what are some of the key takeaways here? Because boy, The hotel industry was hit hard and it hasn't really gotten that much better.
4: That's exactly right. Uh, We were, I would say, one of the hardest hit commercial listed asset classes in the pandemic. Having said that, we're right now tracking the most amount of capital ever, uh, looking to invest in the sector with the anticipation that lodging is going to be the fastest asset class to recover once the vaccine is made widely available and once travel resumes.
2: You know, I don't think people I don't think the average person on the street realizes how gigantic Jones Lang LaSalle is. I mean, it's either the biggest, I think, or, or the second biggest public brokerage firm in the world. This is a company that has its roots back in uh, the 1700s in London and then has really spread around the world. How big is the business you run, the JLL Hotels and Hospitality business?
4: Uh, listen, we're about 300 plus professionals around the world. And um, yes, we're the number one broker, uh, but we pride ourselves in just being overall advisors. So We do everything from investment sales, financing, and strategic advisory and asset management. So the the way that we're positioned has actually given us very good insights as to what is happening from an operating, not just from an operating uh, fundamentals, but also from a, a wider capital markets perspective. So it's, it's very interesting to see uh, what is happening this time around, just because this crisis is unlike like any
1: others. So, Gilda, give us a sense of, you know, what types of hotels were hit the worst, what types maybe have fared better mm-hmm. uh, during this pandemic, and kind of have, have we seen that reflected in valuations?
4: Absolutely. So valuations is a bit tricky at the moment, and I'm going to address that second. But in terms of... of uh, which assets have been hit the hardest, I would say, as, as you said at the onset of the conversation, the, the entire lodging industry has faced unprecedented headwinds. Uh, I don't think any of us ever imagined a scenario where literally their lives were going to be shut, uh, shut down. Um, in terms of, though, which markets or which asset classes have fared better, I would say anything that has to do with drive to leisure demand Those assets are doing fairly well, and they are the ones that are expected to recover the quickest. Uh, We're also paying a lot of attention on some of these geographies that are doing well, especially those that have a net positive migration pattern, you know, markets in in Florida and Texas and the Carolinas. Assets in those markets are doing relatively well. The assets that have been hit the hardest um, are those located in markets like in New York City, Chicago, Boston, San Francisco. Um, And from a segmentation perspective, definitely those hotels that are catering more towards group demand and corporate travel. But it's not to say that we're not expecting um, a recovery across all asset classes. I think uh, we do expect that everything's going to come back. It's just a matter
0: of when.
2: You know, when I think about corporate travel, I can only think about the Westin because it's like the only <laughs> hotel I stayed in for years and years. And of course, um, in terms of M&A, one of the biggest deals in hotels was um, Arnie Sorensen at Marriott buying the SPG Group. And, and what a, an incredible customer loyalty program they had slash have. I, I don't I don't know how well they've done bringing it forward. But um, we had the sad news that Sorensen passed away at the, I think, very young age. Of sixty-two, really tragic, and he was such a huge figure in in the hotel industry. Worked for Bill Marriott since nineteen ninety-six. What do you think about what does this mean to the industry?
4: Oh, listen, we're we're heartbroken. Um, this is it's it's devastating news. He was such an icon, you know, a leader as all of us have you know are embracing, I guess what what has been one of the most challenging moments in in our industry's history, and and he was there at the forefront so you know our thoughts are, are within his family and, and the Marriott family but my gosh he was definitely a pioneer and an inspiration to all of us.
1: Gilda given the real you know disruption to this market do you I mean who's investing in hotel assets right now they have to be a real risk taker?
4: Yeah listen that's, an, that's a great question We have all of the market participants that we had pre-COVID are are very active. So, you know, mostly private equity institutions, the publicly traded rates, Um, they are still bullish on the sector. And what's really interesting is that right now we have newcomers into this space. So we are seeing uh, more and more private investors, family offices, and even hedge funds that are, are looking at the sector through an opportunistic lens. Um, Now, going back to the question that you asked earlier on valuations, this is where it's gotten really tricky. So, while there's a lot of capital out on the sidelines, there haven't been a lot of transactions. So, if you look at what happened in 2020, transaction volume across the world was down 60%. It was down 70% in the U.S. And so, this wave of distress really hasn't materialized. And so, I wonder… What happens to some of the newcomers, you know, the hedge yep. funds, the more opportunistic uh, investors, they, there may not be trade for right.
0: them. But,
1: we're going to have to leave it there know. just because of time. But uh, we really appreciate your time. Gilda Perez Alvarado, Global CEO of JLL Hotels and Hospitality.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
1: What really is becoming clear that the metrics that we all follow as it relates to the pandemic in terms of hospitalization and other metrics are really trending and trending aggressively in the right direction as the virus, uh, you know, as we start to have more and more vaccines into the marketplace and as perhaps the surge from the holidays fades a little bit. The question is, what's going to be the intermediate and longer term effects of this pandemic? Uh, as the economy begins to reopen. Let's welcome Cliff Kupchan. He's a chairman of Eurasia Group. Uh, Cliff, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, the numbers seem to be trending in the right direction for now, uh, giving people some more, I guess, uh, hope for a reopening of this economy, maybe mid-year. How are you guys thinking about it at Eurasia Group as you look at it holistically?
5: I think the main takeaway we have is, is not so fast. You, even just in the um, clip you just played, optimism sweeps across markets. I just wrote it down. Well, uh, we think that the theme of easing restrictions is 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 going to be slower than consensus predicts. That the politics of the virus and what we do here is the politics of markets, the politics of the epidemiology, the new variants, the new variants, the mutations are going to scare governments and publics. And officials are going to be a lot more reluctant than I think consensus observes. Thanks, believes, ease restrictions, uh, knowing the variant the variants are becoming dominant. And you know, a lot of this is public behavior too. I mean, you could ease restrictions, and and people are so scared they're just not going to go back to work. So our, our fear is that the all clear sign, my fear, is being blown too soon. We're going to have a rough, rough, still spring, rest of the winter. And, and and yes, when we get to the early summer, August or so, things will be better. But until then, it's going to be pretty tough.
2: Cliff, let me ask you about the, the new variants, because this seems to be right. um, the most important, scariest variable and, and also kind of the right. weirdest, because during the Spanish flu uh, pandemic, the variants that came after uh, a couple of years were less deadly and I'm not sure about the fatality of of these new variants, but they certainly spread more quickly. Um, Do you not expect the virus to get easier to live with over time? Is it going to be harder to live with, like we've seen with the British and South African variants?
5: Well, there's no way of knowing. The the best probability is that they will be easier to live with. They won't mutate in a very worrisome direction, but that's a guess. What's really scary about these new mutants is that transmissibility goes up. as tr- transmissibility goes up, the chance of the mutation goes up. Now, it could be less less lethal, but it could also be much more lethal. and that's that's going to scare people, and there's reason for, for for concern there. Just nobody knows.
1: So Cliff, you know, this is obviously a global pandemic. There are, different capabilities, or there's different policies, I guess, in different parts of the world, different countries, different capabilities to fight this pandemic. How concerned are you about there will be some haves and have-nots here as we, I guess, come out on the other side of this?
5: Well, there's a lot of reason for concern. In the U.S. and the industrialized democracies, the ability to get vaccines and to roll them out. Is is much much greater than it is in the emerging markets, where you both have less infrastructure, less ability to get vaccines of any kind, and certainly the best vaccines, which right now are the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. So there's a real have and have not. There's a real discrepancy between north and south, and that is going to hit uh, sentiment towards global inequity as as we move forward. So it's a concern.
2: One of the other um, interesting differences that we see between the coronavirus and Spanish flu is older people are affected much more seriously in in health terms. It was younger people during the Spanish flu. Is this going to change demographics at all? I mean, because the numbers appear on the surface to be big in terms of global deaths.
5: I don't think it'll change things much more than they have for the simple reason that the vaccines are rolling out right now that it provides durable protection, the vaccines among older people from everything we know, even against the variants. And what, what, the good news so far, the good news is that the UK variant, the South Africa variant, and the Brazil variant, severe cases and fatalities are all controlled very well by existing vaccines. It's among the younger populations where we see some of the trouble now in Israel, left the real fear in the United States, that the unvaccinated younger people will become more at risk. So. To the extent 80% of deaths so far in the United States have been older people, that's certainly affected the numbers. But but as far as the tectonic lasting change in demographics, I think kind of what you see is what you get. And hopefully, unless there is this new variant, which, as you say, didn't happen in the Spanish flu, this new killer variant out there that, 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 that develops, we're not going to see a big change in demographics now.
1: Cliff, I know in your Eurasia Group report, you, know, you, yeah. you took a look at Israel, and, and Israel right. has had uh, probably some of the best success in terms of the, mm-hmm. the vaccinations. What have they done right?
5: They have a public health system, which we don't have. They've kept data very, very well. They've rushed out everything that they have, just thrown vaccines at the problem. The caveat with Israel, though, it really is the canary in the coal mine, or the guinea pig that we're looking at right now, is among young people. They have until very, very recently seen a surge in infection among younger people. It seems that the UK strain has become dominant there. Again, the UK strain is more lethal, it's much more transmissible. So they've done it right, but but they've also shown what we in the United States have to be very wary of, which is indeed if that UK strain becomes dominant by March, we're gonna be facing higher infection rate as israel is right now with with younger people so they've done things right we also have to look at what's not gone so well right
2: now in israel from 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 my seat here in berlin um (laughs) the u.s actually looks like they've they've got it right as well i mean i know americans all my family and friends in the states complain Mm -hmm. about how slow the rollout is but it looks so great compared to you know, the the snail's pace that we've got here. What has Europe done wrong, and um, will they ramp it up quickly?
5: Europe has just not been nimble in setting up the kind of infrastructure. Well, Europe has not had the vaccine supply, not had the sort of nimble infrastructure, which is, ah, gosh, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. The United States under Biden certainly has, in the, even in the short time he's been president, ramped up its, distribution efficacy has better access to vaccines so both on distribution efficacy and on access to vaccines the u.s is ahead of well not the uk U.K. has done quite well but but the eu continental europe has just been quite slow on both counts
1: hey cliff thank you so much for okay. joining us we really appreciate it cliff Kupchen, chairman of the Eurasia group uh giving us his thoughts on the pandemic longer term so matt you are in berlin and the feeling there is Great frustration. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, absolute frustration. I mean, we look at um, this liberal multilateral government in Brussels just didn't do nearly as well as America first Donald Trump and Brexit's Boris Johnson. They got all the supply. Even if you don't like them politically, you've got to appreciate what they did for... The vaccine rollout.
1: Yeah, and it looks like again the numbers in terms of that Matt, here in the U.S. are really looking positive. And now the question is, you know, how quickly can uh, they get supply into the marketplace? I'm looking at WTI crude here, just under $60, a barrel higher, again, due in large part to supply disruptions, particularly out of Texas, the Permian Basin, as the Midwest deals with this incredible uh, cold snap weather coming all the way down into Texas. Let's get the latest. We can do that with Noreen Malik. Noreen is a natural gas and power markets reporter for Bloomberg News. Noreen, it is brutal in terms of a weather perspective. It's wreaking havoc on the U.S. uh, energy infrastructure. What's the latest
6: yeah, we still have millions of people without power and it seems like that the power crisis is expanding. Like we the Texas grid has had rolling blackouts since early in the morning on on Monday and we've had Rounds of blackouts on the southwest power pool grid so just to the west of texas the grid there and then to the east of texas um, the grid um, operated by MISO, which um, Extends from the midwest to um, the gulf coast their southern region is also experiencing forced blackouts and you know the, It's unclear when this is going to end there are people that have been out without power for Over a day in texas and um, the Southwest grid thinks that we could they could probably see um, rotating outages um, or rounds of them for the next 48 hours. So it's not going away anytime soon.
2: Yeah, I saw that Uh, actually a lot of power producers, including nuclear plants, had gone offline. Do we know why?
6: It's a combination of of things. One, of course, like infrastructure is just freezing, so wind turbines are just getting frozen. But Mm. on Monday, or or, or, a lot of the generation outages are are things like natural gas plants, which are such a key play, such a key role in, in the grid. They're the main supplier of of fuel and power to the Texas grid and and much of the U S you've also had coal plants that are experiencing mechanical issues. Um, you've had a nuclear plant that tripped offline on Monday morning. The South Texas project had one of two reactors, um, because of like, uh, some steam generator issues, a pump failed. So there's a lot of different issues that are contributing to the outages. Um, fuel prices, like natural gas prices, have skyrocketed. They just hit a thousand or close to a thousand dollars, $999 in Oklahoma. Production is way down in the Permian and like Oklahoma, which, mm. you know, Texas is our, our like largest mm. producer of fuel, but we can't get it to the right places at the right time.
1: Hey, N- Noreen, you know, a couple of years ago, I read a book uh, entitled The Grid, and it, I know it's a little nerdy, but it kind of you know, kind of walked us through the development of electricity in the United States. And one of the things I learned that is Texas is kind of really not on the United States grid. They've got their own grid. It's not regulated at the federal level. Is that contributing to any of the problems in Texas?
6: So you got exactly right. They are the Lone Star State, and they (laughs) uh, are maintaining that in the electricity market, too. They are set up as an official grid by... Um, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, but they have deliberately limited how many inner ties, so how many high-voltage lines go out and connect to neighboring states. So it does isolate them from importing power, and they are right now importing as much as they can from neighboring states and even from Mexico. So it does you know, limit their ability for alternative supplies and could be a reason why they are seeing maybe limited ability to like, um, to you know, you know, find other supplies. Um, but again, you know, California had an issue of like just a few months ago yep. with blackouts and they have way more ties, but they also ran into issues.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. So any sense of timing here, um, Noreen, in terms of when things might get a little bit back to normal? I know it's dependent upon the weather, but what are are you hearing?
6: So it it depends on the weather, but it really, the big factor is going to be how fast can power plants that tripped offline come back online? Mm. And we keep seeing updates from the Texas grid operator that within hours, they'll get more generation and that should alleviate the you know some of the outages like that people are experiencing but you know the conditions are going to last like at like into tuesday parts of the south are going to see like extreme conditions potentially into thursday so there are a lot of moving parts and and that's why it makes it really difficult to predict um
1: yeah yeah it's just I, been uh just been brutal I, you know I, I, when we have power issues up here you know we see the, the trucks from the rest of the country come here to help us out. and Hopefully uh, the rest of the country can help out Texas and the other areas uh, that are getting hit hard. Noreen Malek, natural gas and power markets reporter for Bloomberg. Thank you so much for joining us. And Matt, this is, seems like it, this is a weather driven issue and the f- good folks down in Texas are to have to batten down the hatches for a few days.
2: I, I'd say coincidentally I just watched last night the day after tomorrow. Have you seen that with no. um, Dennis? Yeah, you're reading the grid, right? You're doing yes. the highbrow. <laughs> uh, you're doing the highbrow in the weeds and I'm watching the Dennis Quaid movie but that's about um, cold weather be- due to climate change just freezing over North America and it's yeah. just
1: so similar <laughs> it's a, I thought they'll probably feel not down in Texas
2: thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer I'm Matt Miller I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973 I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter
1: at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
0: Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the future investor